Today we um, <clears throat> we celebrate another day of the Lord's Day. So, uh, welcome to Carlsbad Bible Church. We're glad you're here today, and those who are listening online as well. We pray that uh, today you are blessed with the worshiping of the Lord, with uh, the preaching of His Word, and the singing of music. Um, I'm designed to and you and uh, chosen to glorify God through His His truth. So. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles, if you don't mind today. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. 19.11. If you're there, say mine. (laughs) All right. Revelation 19.11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True, And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations." He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh, thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this church is our Lord and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for today, Lord. We just thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. We pray one day that Christ will come soon, Lord. I pray, Lord, specifically for his return, and Lord, we just thank you for um, the coming of Christ, Lord, to die on the cross for our sins. I pray that we as a church and we as the people do not take that lightly, and that we do not use that as a crutch, Lord, to sin. Lord, hold us accountable as we are your slaves, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated, and as you do take your seat, I want to ask that you turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 2. And I know I've read this text several times already, but I feel it's important for us to cover more than just what our teaching will be confined to, but rather look at it in the context in which Paul brings it to us. And uh, we want to remind you to be like those noble-minded Bereans that are in Acts chapter 17, where Paul and Silas went into Berea. They taught at the synagogues there, and those that they encountered um, were kind of different in that they went to the scriptures to prove the things that they were hearing from Paul and from Silas being taught to them. They went to prove that they were so looking to God's word to instruct them and not to man's words, and they were commended for that. We want to commend you and encourage you as well to keep your Bibles open and to use your Bible as a check with what man is telling you. And so we want to do that today, and that includes here in our teaching from Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11, and the teaching will mainly be in verses 9 through 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're going to be concluding what scholars say is a hymn of Paul's, that he wrote this in a type of Greek form that reads like a psalm, where he starts in around verses 5 through 11, it rings out as like a song that Paul is singing out to the church of what Christ has done for us in giving us this example of supreme humility and then exaltation. So we've been going on this short journey, if you will, this journey with Jesus from his humility and what we've covered the last couple of Sundays now into the exaltation of Christ above all. The exaltation being the focus of today's teaching. But I want us to look first back at a text from Luke's Gospel. And it comes from chapter 9. And I want us to read verses 46 through 48. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. And I'll begin in verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which is the greatest, who should be the greatest in the kingdom. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great." Paul, in our reading of Philippians today, has very thoroughly presented Christ as God, the one who has become the least, as an example of his humility, an example for us, and demonstrating that if we are to desire unity among the body of Christ, we must have this in mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Jesus left his high rank in heaven, He emptied himself, he self-limited, didn't leave any of his deity behind, 100% God, 100% man, and we talked about that last week, and that he didn't leave his deity, but rather he did not exploit that which was rightfully his. The power that he could have exercised at his will, he chose not to, so that he could show us this humility by coming the form and taking the form of a servant. And he took on that human form, becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And I find it so often in my reading of Scripture, and every time I go through a book of the Bible, I see an example where God takes something that appears in man's eyes as something that doesn't necessarily make sense. Or we may see it unfolding a certain way before we get to the conclusion, and then God takes it and he always seems to flip the script on us. He turns it upside down. And that's what we have seen here in the example of Christ's humility. God seems to take something that is lowly and he brings it 
to a higher status. He did it in the life of Moses. He used Moses, which, who said he couldn't speak to men. He didn't want to be a, a, a mouthpiece, if you will. He didn't feel like he had the gift to do this, but yet God chose him to lead his people out of exile in Egypt. We see him doing it in the life of David, where David was God's chosen king and not Saul, who Saul appeared in the eyes of men as somebody that had it all together. He had the appearance of a really strong politician, and that's probably what he was, but rather God took what man saw as something weak and lowly, and God turned him, put him into a position of prominence. We also see him doing this with Abraham and Sarah, where he brings to them this child of promise at an age beyond childbearing years. They thought it was impossible, yet God made it possible. He did it with Jacob and Esau, reversing the birthright, where now Jacob had the blessing of his father, and Esau sold his birthright. But God, taking what was lowly and elevating atop what man saw, And as Joseph was also an example being brought from captivity as a prisoner to a place of prominence in Egypt, and the list goes on, you know, man thinks that he has to be this way, it has to work out according to our plan, but God takes it in another direction to show his power, to show his omnipotence, to show his supremeness. And Paul is presenting also here this divine paradox something that may seem foolish to the natural man or natural woman. As Paul would write in Corinthians that it is the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. But it shows us that the way up is down. That is God's design throughout the scriptures. That a cross precedes a crown. That the road of exaltation by the Father is paved by humble service to others for the Father's glory. And this is counter to what our world teaches us. It is counter to what our sinful flesh desires. And it runs counter to what Satan sought after. In his fall, we see an example of our own fallen state. Turn to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14. We don't get a whole lot of depictions of the enemy, Satan, in his state before he was fallen, but this is a description of him. In Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12, we find there through the prophet, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol. To the far reaches of the pit, those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? But isn't this also how we are deceived? We see the enemy setting his will above God's will. In 1 John 2.16, says there that all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life 
is not from the Father, but is from the world. This pride of life, this seeking prominence, a position of fame and glory for ourselves. I will. I can make it my own way. I will step over this person and that person to get what I want. And this should not be in the church. Satan gives us this false way up. In fact, he wants to start from the top and work down to the bottom. But Jesus shows us that the way up is down. He would say, your will, Father, and not my will. Luke twenty-two forty-two, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As Jesus was faced with taking the cup of wrath, the sins of the world upon himself, he chose the Father's will. Jesus did not take what was rightfully his anyway. He did not exploit what he could have. He could have ended it all there. He could have destroyed everyone that was coming to take him captive, but yet he humbled himself. And he took, he did not take, but rather he waited for it to be bestowed upon him. The glory that was his. And what he rather took was the cup of wrath on our behalf. So Paul, with this declaration of therefore in verse 9, he now shifts to Jesus' right that he obtained of, as the Son who pleased the Father by becoming obedient to the point of death, death upon the cross. And Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. His becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross, his humility resulted in his being raised from low to high, raised to prominence, to a place of lordship over all. After he had overcome the grave, he was raised in power to power. God has highly exalted him, is what Paul says here. And that word, highly exalted, is huper upsao, huper upsao, and the huper of that Greek word means above or high, and it intensifies the meaning by adding upsao to that. The upsao means to elevate and to lift high. So what we see here is that this means to exalt to the highest rank of power, not just a promotion that you might experience in your job where now you've gone from low man on the totem pole to somewhere in between. This highly exalted means to be raised to supreme majesty. It is a supereminent exaltation that is being described by Paul here because Jesus was willing to humble himself and be obedient to the death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God put his seal of approval on Jesus' death. He was worthy as the only lamb who could take away the sins of the world, and God was satisfied in what the Son had done through his death on the cross. Peter proclaimed to the Judas Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, He says there, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand 
as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Men did not exalt Jesus. Jesus did not wait for man to exalt him or before his time assume his rightful place of, place of exaltation because man, that's where man wanted him to be. When he rode into Jerusalem and the people were crying out, Hosanna, save now, that's what they had in mind. We want to put you on this earthly throne. We want you to overthrow Roman rule on our behalf. And so they sought to elevate him before his ordained time, but yet submitted to the will of the Father, he did not take what they tried, that what they wanted to do. They wanted to exalt him. So man did not exalt Jesus. But rather later on, we see what they did is they cast insults and they cast abuse upon him. They mocked, they ridiculed, they spit upon him. They called him all kinds of names. It was the Father that exalted Jesus. It was the Father that gave Jesus the name that is above every name, the name of Lord, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This name above every name acknowledges Christ's absolute lordship as divine king over the entire universe. And this is evident in what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1. This is one of the books that we've covered already. But you may remember back to what is said of of Christ being preeminent with God in Colossians chapter chapter 1, sorry, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He was already Lord over all these things. In verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And with this comes his right to be worshipped. In Hebrews 12 1 through 2, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is his current status. That is his place of lordship. In verse 10 of Philippians 2, Paul says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In the Old Testament, when we see the expression, the name of God, it communicates to us something. It communicates to us the divine presence of God, the essence of God being with us. And so when Paul uses the name in here, we must have this in view of what he is saying here. It expresses his majesty. It expresses God's being, his essence as the object of our worship and of our praise. And it is equivalent to the Old Testament name of God, which is Yahweh. A name so sacred that the Hebrews would not even let it form on their lips. They would not even pronounce the name Yahweh. So when they were reading the scriptures, they came to the word Yahweh. What they would do is they would read it as Adonai, which means Lord, which means Jesus is Lord. It means Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God, eternal God. 
and the honor and worship this name was worthy of is bestowed on him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, knowing the cross was coming soon, would look ahead to his glorification in his prayer to the Father found in John chapter 17, which I call the Lord's Prayer, because this is Jesus directly communicating with the Father here. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with with you before the world existed. There is his preeminence with God in his glory before the world existed, and now he is also looking forward ahead at his being exalted back to his state of glory with the Father. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And the emphasis here is on every creature in the universe will acknowledge Jesus as Lord over all creation. Every knee should bow. Every living thing, both in heaven and on earth, will honor Christ in a physical way. And that is seen in bowing the knee before His sovereignty. This includes demonic powers. This includes people who reject Christ and those who are His faithful in the church. All will bow the knee. And so just because these verses state that all creation will honor Christ as Lord, it does not mean that all will be saved. Some might try to take this out of context and say, here is where God is saving all people. No, here is where all people, regardless of saved or unsaved, are falling in surrender and acknowledgement of his lordship because they are ultimately subject to his will and his power. Let me find my way back into my notes here. I got a little bit ahead. <laughs> so that the emphasis, we must understand this as being all creatures. All will bow before him and acknowledge him as sovereign Lord of the universe. The word of the Lord, again, through the prophet Isaiah, probably should have had you hold your place there, but in chapter 45, verses 23 through 24, by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. So even there we see that in, in quotes by the prophet Isaiah. This is the preeminent Lord Jesus Christ here through the words of Isaiah being spoken to us. And this speaks of a time when every being will acknowledge his authority, speaking this of Jesus, and then Paul reaffirming that here for us in Philippians chapter 2. Christ has faced his humility, and that is our example for how we are to treat one another. The recipe of unity is that humility, and now Christ rules and reigns from heaven, but we do not hold that position. Only he does. Every knee should bow to him and him alone. No one will be able to stand in their pride before Jesus. He is everything that God is because he is God. When we first started reading this hymn of Paul's, it says, who being in the form of God, that form was morphe, having the essence of God, God being God. That was his form that is unchanging about him. 
He's the preeminent Christ. He's Christ incarnate, and he is the same Christ that is reigning and ruling over all. He is everything that God is. And our wills will not keep us upright in defiance. But there will be no other choice but to bow the knee before him. Every knee shall bow. I think of what it says in Psalm 1 where it speaks there of the wicked, how they will not be able to stand in the judgment. And to me, that doesn't depict them not being there in judgment, but they won't be not, will not be able to stand. They will be bowed before him. We will either bow having already submitted to his lordship as his faithful followers, or we will be those bowed, though they want to stand, they'll have no ability. Political powers... You know, people of great importance will be stripped of all their worldly power. All wills will be subjected to the one who is all-powerful, whether they want to or not. John wrote that in heaven, in Revelation chapter 4, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And you move ahead to Revelation five thirteen through 14. There is a very similar declaration. It says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped him. Paul adds to this that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And I think that gives us the picture of this sphere that All these three locations or these three groups described here covers all three of the spheres from top to bottom, symbolizes something that is complete, and it describes the totality of his lordship in that every knee that is submitted and bowed to him from heaven, from earth, and to under the earth. As far as you can reach up and as far as you can reach down, he is Lord over all. In heaven, We can equate that to being all the the good angels, all the redeemed believers over all of the ages. The on earth expresses the unredeemed and the redeemed alike. All of us here and under the earth. And most interpreters of this text seem to think that this is in reference to fallen angels and the unredeemed dead who are awaiting final judgment and eternal punishment. One of the commentators, Woost, adds that all creation will render such homage, whether animate or inanimate, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. No one will be able to escape or hide from God's judgment. I remember when I was working as a park ranger at Carlsbad Caverns National Park for a couple of summers there in between college, I was a seasonal ranger. And I had this comment come back to me. It was a written comment that came about a week later on one of my tours And it wasn't any comment on what I had done or the job that I had done, but rather it spoke to the darkness of the cave that we were in. And they were kind of philosophizing about when God comes in final judgment, how is he going to know those people are there under the earth, in the ground, as if somehow they're masked from him. 
And I had no chance to respond back because it wasn't a face-to-face interaction. Of course, at that time, I was, uh, I was walking as an unredeemed. But now I think about that comment, and I was like, how, how could one think that we are somehow hiding ourselves away from God if we just go into a cave? When very clearly here, Paul writes that even those under the earth, if you get trapped in a cave and that's where you die, you're still going to have to bow the knee in judgment before him. There's nowhere we can go that we can hide. No one will be able to escape. And in God bestowing on Jesus this position of Lord over all, he is going to be judge over all of them. 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul writes there, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So Christ is established as ruler over all, and he will be judge over all. Not only will our posture be indicative of his established lordship over all things, but we're also told by Paul that our words will even exhibit it. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this word confess is from a Greek word, examalegeo. Let me try that again. Examalageo is confess. But it means to openly or plainly confess, almost as if there is nothing that can stop you from doing it. There is no guard there. We talk about filters, you know, having to filter things that we say. But here in this moment, not only will we not have the ability to prevent ourselves from bowing the knee, but we will also not have the ability to hold our tongue and not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It also carries with it this sense to come into agreement with someone. God, you have bestowed on him the name that is above every name, and I agree with you. I confess that he is Lord. And it indicates that one day the entire universe will agree with God the Father on the testimony which we, he has given to us about his Son. For the Jews, this meant that the word they had been given concerning their Messiah was true and that, their Jesus, that Jesus was the same one. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God preserving his chosen nation, his remnant Israel, and promising them a sent one, the Messiah, who would come and redeem them. And he was even presented to them in the Holy Scriptures as a suffering Messiah. And yet they rejected him when he took this position of humility. It's like, wait, that's not the God we want. That's not the Messiah we want. And they failed to look to the scriptures. I mean, Paul says they were hold even a higher responsibility because they have the very oracles of God that told them that this is what Jesus would do. So Jesus embodied, this name that Paul uses for Jesus embodies all the things that the scripture says of him. And this is a testimony to them. The word that is used here, Jesus Christ is Lord, Jesus being his given name, Jesus, there were a lot of uh, men named Jesus at that time that's translated into Latin as Jesus. And it's the same Hebrew word as Yeshua or Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. So it wasn't by accident that 
Joseph just decided to name his son Jesus. There was meaning behind that. God in his providence directed that. But then we also see Paul add on, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, I've already alluded to that, but being the Christ is Christos, and that means to rub or anoint someone with oil, to consecrate someone to an office. It means the one who has been appointed or anointed, which symbolizes uh, an appointment to a task, but it's also translated as a Messiah. So Jesus, meaning Yahweh saves, is also Christos, which means the appointed or chosen one, and then Lord which is the Greek word kodios, and it describes one who is absolute ownership and uncontrolled power. And that is Jesus, our Lord. It is the translation of the word found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint, and it's to be translated there as Jehovah. And we are told that at his second coming, that Jesus Christ will manifest sovereign authority over all creation. That's why Ray had started us with that scripture from Revelation this morning in our reading. And this is all to be to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God acts to accomplish his will to the glory of his name. In the model prayer that our Lord gave us, we orient ourselves to God at the very beginning of that prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is God who has brought glory to himself through his creation, both of the redeemed and those who are unredeemed, the animate and the inanimate, God has brought glory to himself through his redemptive plan accomplished through God the Son, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. Christ, from eternity past, the plan was laid out to save lost sinners by God, and he is to receive all the glory. Glory to God the Father. That the way up is down. My heart would be that all would confess Jesus Christ as Lord at a time where it will lead to their salvation. We have these spaces that we exist in and that we live in now, and things that I'm saying now are becoming part of our past, and we don't know how much future is in front of us. We don't know how much time is allotted to any one of us here, much less those who are out in the world that are already perishing and Honestly, I don't know your hearts before God. Only he sees and he knows. I can see manifestations of his presence within someone, the fruit of the Spirit, but truly we don't know a person's heart fully like God does. My prayer is that everyone would confess Jesus Christ as Lord at this time before it is too late. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek 
For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He won't turn a deaf ear to those who come to him when they're confronted with their sin. They have that conviction and they confess that they are lost. Before that time comes when the confession that Paul is speaking of here in Philippians will not lead to salvation. This will be a confession of his lordship knowing that you're headed to an eternal separation from God and his love. But salvation is the transforming work of God on the human soul, moving us to believe upon him and his work on the cross. And the father was fully satisfied in his son's sacrifice for our sin because he was raised and he is declared Lord. Our prayer is that God would move upon that unsaved heart or those unsaved hearts that are even here today, that they would confess him as Lord and Savior today. To be confronted with your sin sometimes is not a comfortable thing. It shouldn't be. When our wicked hearts are exposed to us, if we are unregenerate and that wickedness is exposed to us, we should come right now in agreement with God about that sin. Say, yes, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I am lost and I need to be found. I need your saving grace. Salvation will transform the sinner's heart. And our prayer is that God would move upon the unsaved heart and that they would confess him as Lord and Savior today. To be confronted and agree with God and confess that you are in need of a Savior. And you plead upon the tender mercies of God before it is too late and believe that Jesus is Lord. Humble yourself before him and experience his saving grace today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. God, that you are Lord, that you are over all. We see in Christ your goodness and your tender mercies revealed to us. And yet I know that there are still those who have an unrepentant heart before you, God. I don't know if those are here today, but you know them if they are. And as we've just described, God, it takes the work of a miracle on their heart. You are the one who saves. We give it all to you, God. And we thank you for your grace through your son, Jesus Christ, who became sin for us, that we might become in him your righteousness. And when we confess our sin, we repent of it, Lord. We recognize that Christ's sacrifice was counted worthy, that we were justified in that he was risen from the grave and that we can appear before you as righteous because of Christ. Father, if we've been seeking a place of prominence by our own will and trying to get ahead and walking over others, we know especially in the church that that should just not be so. You call us to unity and you call us to humility. Just cause this to come to bear on our hearts and Father, direct us in the ways that we need to go in a way that is pleasing to you. We confess that there are times we're going to fail, but when we do, we pray that you would immediately prick our hearts and bring us back to that state of confession and repentance before you that we would live our lives to the glory of your name and the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.